eventually there's this transition that takes place where your second, third book, you realize, oh, this is a craft. Uh, as romantic as it is, it's also the same kind of work that a plumber does. You just have yeah. to show up every day and, and, do, and it. do it well. This is The Gently Mad, a show where I talk to and pick the brains of the smartest people running creative online businesses. Actually, not so much. If you're looking for that inspirational kick in the pants to help take your life and career to the next level, then this is probably not the place for you. To be perfectly honest, this podcast is about me. Hey, I'm Adam Clark, and I'm your host. Thanks for listening. I do talk to people on this show, but instead of that double rainbow of success BS that you'll get in most entrepreneurial shows, we talk about failure, self-doubt, and all the insecurities that we all have that keep us from doing much of anything with our lives. If that sounds like your kind of thing, then head over to avclark.com slash TGM and subscribe. Any actionable advice or helpful tips are simply a byproduct and purely unintentional. What is up, my friends? This is the Gently Mad. I'm Adam Clark. Thanks for listening. Man, I got to thank you guys so much. I know I do this at the top of every episode, but I just, I mean, I have to. I mean, it's been, uh, I can't, I can't believe it. You know, the show has been live for two weeks now and it's just been blowing up. Okay. Uh, we, we just hit the, the front page of iTunes yesterday, I think. Um, yeah, yesterday hit the front page of iTunes after, after two weeks and I'm blown away. And the only reason that is, is because so many of you are listening and downloading, getting lots of email. And I just, I, I'm so glad that you're resonating and connecting with this. I'll be honest. When I decided to reboot this show, I had no idea if anyone would listen because I removed any pressure from myself to make a show that other people would like and I decided to make the show that I wanted to make and you know screw if anyone else liked it or not or if anyone else listened you know I wanted to do it I'm doing it because it's something that I really enjoy doing and I want to talk to these people and have these conversations with them but I wasn't sure if anyone else would want to listen to that and I've just been so surprised by the fact that it has connected with as many of you as it has, which is just a testament, I think, to the fact of of being yourself and just being who you want to be. I mean, um, the last show, to some degree, not all the way, but to some degree in the last show, I, I was trying to do a certain thing and be a certain thing for that industry. And, you know, the show right before that, I had this whole plan of a show that I was going to make. And I was going to make a living off of it. And it was just this whole plan that I was gung-ho over. And halfway through that, I realized I can't do this. You know, it's, it's so fake. It's just not me. I'm just, I'm just copying a template that I've seen other people be successful with and, you know, throwing myself into it. And it just, it didn't, it just didn't feel like me. And so I decided, whatever, I'm just going to make the show that I want to make. And then I, I'm really going to have fun making. And I don't care if anyone listens to it or not. And I'm so glad I did that because it really, really has uh, seemed to connect with a lot of you as evidenced by just 
all of you who are listening and downloading and rating and reviewing, and it's really meant a lot to me. So thank you so much for doing that. This is this is an interesting week. It's a great week because Monday's episode was with one of my favorite musicians of all time, Derek Webb, who I have been listening to for probably close to not not quite twenty years, but almost you know late teens when I when I discovered his band and started listening to him and to get to sit down in Nashville in person and talk to him was a dream come true. I, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I was shocked that he, he said yes. And that I was able to do that. Well, today's interview is with one of my favorite writers of all time. One of my favorite authors, Donald Miller. He wrote a book, man, how long has it been now? Uh, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago called blue like jazz. And you may be familiar with that book. It was made into a movie in the late 2000s as well. And that book changed my life. It just, it, it changed so many things for me. And uh, I, I, I'm just, again, in the same way that I'm shocked with uh, how many of you have connected with this show, I'm, I'm shocked that I've been able to talk to some of these people that have created work that has had such an impact and influence on my life. And so... A little bit of interesting story about uh, this interview with Donald Miller. It, you know, it was another one that I was able to do in person. Uh, I, I drove to Nashville. I don't live far from there. And we sat down and we got about halfway through and my uh, equipment started kind of malfunctioning. <laughs> and um, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I kind of I had a new recorder that I was using and I didn't know it well enough to know what to do and it just stopped working. So we got about halfway through the interview and we had to quit. And then we finished the rest up about, I don't know, a month, two months later over Skype. So there is a little bit of a sound issue with this episode. I apologize. Halfway through it kind of kind of changes. You, you'll be able to tell when uh, we, we, we stopped the in-person interview and picked it back up on Skype. So I apologize for that. But, you know, it was just, it was a great conversation. Donald Miller is, like I said, one of my favorite writers and has had such an impact on me. He's written a number of books. It was so fun to talk to him and talk about the writing process and how, you know, I mean, th- this guy that I've looked up to for so long has so many of the same struggles that I have and has so many of the same holdups and hangups and issues as me and most of my friends do, which, you know, sucks for him, <laughs> but it's encouraging to know that we're all, we're all kind of in the same boat. And what I loved about this conversation is that Don was just really honest about, you know, what, what his life is like. And so many, so many of the themes that have run throughout the show since the beginning show up in this conversation too about think things like, you know, just showing up and just doing the work, just showing up every day and doing the work is, is what he had to do, is what he's had to do every day to publish books and to make companies and create the life he's created for himself. It's not luck or magic or overnight or silver bullet or whatever. He just had to show up every day and do it and do it over and over and over again until something worked. And it was really interesting to me. Blue Light Jazz uh, made it to the New York Times bestseller list. And it was really, we had this fun part of the conversation where, you know, I, 
I can identify with that. When I was a kid, I, I always wanted to be a writer. That's what I thought I was going to be when I grew up. And of course, I dreamed about, you know, getting on the New York Times bestseller list, writing some sort of Pulitzer Prize winning book. And Don talks about how, you know, the when, when the book made it to the New York Times bestseller list, he thought, you know, it, it, it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. It wasn't like this huge feeling of success and he'd made it and it was just going to be coasting from then on and, and in fact afterward it was it was a tough time a period of almost depression where he didn't know what to do because uh it didn't satisfy him in the way he thought it would be satisfying and if 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 achieving quote success that he had set for himself didn't provide meaning for his life then what what was going to do that and so we we dove into all that stuff and talked about that and and how he even came to writing and, you know, how he, how he spent time driving around delivering Chinese food and memorizing poems he'd written down on index cards. And, uh, and, and, and about that moment, there was a moment in his journey where, you know, he tried to write a book dozens of times. And one day he sat down and wrote a page of this book. And, and just knew this this was the one this was something different about this one he was gonna finish this one it was gonna it was gonna be something and we talked all about that and there's just so many great things in this conversation and I'm really excited to share it with you I, I got a couple things to talk about first though one is Don gave a talk at a conference I don't remember I think it was a year or two ago and it's one of the greatest talks. I've ever heard. He really uh, expanded on some of the stuff we talked about in this interview. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes, which you can find all the things we mentioned in this episode by going to the show notes at avclark.com slash nine. And uh, all the links will be there. But I really encourage you to go listen to that talk. It's not long. And I think that you'll be encouraged by it. So I'm excited to get to this. But before that, it is December 31st, folks, the last day of the year and also the last day of the contest. Yes, the contest, which I have mentioned so many times, but it ends today. So if, if you, you still have a chance, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, December 31st, you can still get in on it. I'm giving away a lot of cool shit, seriously, a, a free year of fizzle. Uh, if you don't know what that is, just go to fizzle.co and watch the intro video and and try not to subscribe honestly it's it's that good and i'm giving away a jfdi session with me if you don't know what that is you can go to abclark.com slash contest and find out what that is giving away an ipad air amazon gift card just all kinds of cool stuff it's the last day so if you want to get in on it go to abclark.com slash contest and uh follow the steps there's a couple little things you got to do it'll take like two minutes and you will be in. I'll be announcing the winners and distributing the various things uh, probably about a week from now. I don't know the exact day. I've got to wait for iTunes to actually actually send through all the, the ratings and reviews. It takes them, uh, I don't know, a day or so. So once I have all that, then I'm going to actually be notifying the people who won the various items. So if you're interested, do that. Also want to encourage you to jump on the mailing list there at avclark.com slash TGM. 
Uh, that's the main way I stay in touch with those of you who want to stay in touch. And I would encourage you to do that if, if it's something you're interested in. I like to send out these little newsletters and, you know, take things uh, a step further than just this podcast. I know you're out there listening, but I love to actually take the relationship a little bit further and, and, and talk over email or and, uh, and and help out with anything I can help out with and just, you know, help each other out. That's 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 what we kind of do in this little community and I really love it. So if you want to be part of that, you can do that too. Last thing I want to mention is uh, my podcasting course. I've mentioned that before, but the pre-sale is still going on. It's not going to be going on for much longer, but it's going on right now. And uh, you can still get in on that uh, at the moment by going to avclark.com slash course. I'm really excited about that. And I'm really stoked by how many people have already joined in and, and decided to go ahead and support me now before I've even released it, which which means a lot. And it's, it's kind of energized me to, to get going with it. So if you're interested in that, if you're interested in this whole podcasting thing, if you want to start a podcast in 2015 or, or thinking about it, uh, it's a good time to get that course because it is a lot cheaper than it will be when it launches. Uh, Don Miller also has several of his own courses that I can attest to uh, their value. They're, they're really great, really great stuff. And again, the links are going to be at avclark.com slash nine, and you can go check them out. Some of them are not going to be available for much longer, so I would encourage you to check that out. So I'm excited to share this with you. I apologize for some of the audio issues we had, uh, but it was a great conversation, and I'm just thrilled that I was able to talk to Don because, as I said, he's one of my favorite authors of all time, and I've enjoyed all of his books and everything he puts out. And it was it was kind of a an amazing opportunity to get to sit down with him in Nashville and and just talk talk about writing and talk about life and creativity and uh, various creative pursuits and meaning and purpose and how we balance it all. You know, just the stuff that we talk about on this show. It's all here, and Don's an extremely intelligent, smart, kind guy, and I was thrilled to be able to talk to him. So we'll be right back with that conversation after this word from our sponsor. wise sage once said it's all about the features baby actually that's not true i just made that up however that is often what a lot of companies tout about their products is their features well i'm here to say that features don't mean shit features don't matter everyone has features what less accounting gives you is a process and a system that saves you time and saves you money how do they do that let's talk to alan Alan's one of the co-founders of Less Accounting. We, we help you with uh, expense categorization. So uh, we have about 30 billion transactions in Less Accounting through all our customers. And we know when we import from your bank or your credit card, if you spent money at Starbucks, we know that's coffee or meals. And so we categorize that for you as meals and entertainment because we know Starbucks is meals and entertainment. So we do some bookkeeping for you. It's all um, done through you know code. So you can see my expenses? Like you know how much money I spend on Starbucks? Because that would be embarrassing. That'd be embarrassing. That's not me personally. No, our, you know, we have servers and that sort of thing. But I'm not looking through your books, no. 
Oh, so just like the Skynet accounting, less accounting, Skynet knows what how much money I spend on Starbucks, but not you, basically. Correct. No, I don't look at people's books. No. <laughs> so privacy. Privacy is another good reason to use less accounting. Privacy is good. You know, it's cloud-based, blah, 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 all those, all those buzzwords. Uh, but our, our goal is just, just to save you time uh, and not have an end of the year frust- frustrating moment. Keep your accountant happy. If you just follow the rules, which is spend about an hour a month going through your books and reconciling your books, and we show you how to do that. And uh, by the end of the year, you should be good if you just follow the rules. Nice. Okay. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for uh, uh, telling me about uh, you know everything I'm doing wrong with your <laughs> software. I'm going to go and uh, balance my books now. You should do that. So, Less Accounting. Go check them out at lessaccounting.com slash TGM. And there's a page there with information just for you, just for listeners of this show. Check them out. Let me know what you think. Less Accounting. Accounting software for business owners who hate accounting. I know I've kept you waiting long enough, and I really built up this interview, so I hope you enjoy it. I had a fantastic time talking to Don, and I really appreciate him coming on the show. So, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Donald Miller. So yeah, what brought you to Nashville? I I felt like you you uh you were kind of like almost like a Portland evangelist. Yeah. Almost you 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 know talked yeah. about it a lot, and I was shocked to find out that you were actually I tend here to be an evangelist Southeast. of wherever I'm at because uh, <laughs> I just like where I'm at. But Portland is a magical town. I, I spent 20 years there, uh, and then you know as my career began to grow, I was traveling so much that. Uh, when you travel out of the Pacific Northwest, you really spend a day getting to wherever you're going, a day yeah. doing whatever you're going to do, and then a day to get back. So everything was three days. Nashville is an hour and a half flight from 70 plus percent of the population of the United States. So you're, I can really get out, get what I need to get done, done and get mm. back. So that was one factor. Another factor was two of my closest friends in Portland, uh, you know, married, had babies, and began uh, planning to move away from Portland to be closer to in-laws and built-in babysitters and yeah. those kinds of things. That made the city less attractive to me. Yeah. And then uh, when I uh, met my now wife, Betsy, who lived in D.C., uh, I was going to have to spend a season in D.C. pursuing her. And when I decided to do that, I decided whether or not it worked out, I was going to move to Nashville. Um, my publisher's here, my booking agent was here, my literary agent was here. Hmm. Uh, and then I started a little company called Story Brand, and the guy who ran it was here. Then we hired a designer who was here. We got an office here. I was the only one in the Northwest. Everything was happening in Nashville. Hmm. So for the last 10 years or more, I have played with the idea of moving to Nashville for many reasons, and it just seemed like the season to do it. And it was definitely the right move. Still a Portland magical city, but uh, I'm crazy about Nashville. The people in this town. Yeah. Uh, the, honestly, the property value, the tax structure, when you're running a business, Nashville uh, is just a fantastic place to live. And the, the people are so collaborative, maybe because of the music influence, Yeah. that when you're working on something, they just want to come around you and work on it with you. When they're working on something, you want to contribute to whatever effort. You get excited about what they're building. And, and uh, that wasn't but, really the case in Portland, you found? or People are very... Uh, uh, independent and creative in Portland, they're very friendly, but uh, 
you know, it's not a band city. It's not a city where you have to have a bunch yeah. of people working with you. So it's, it's, it has a feel of a little bit more independent, individualistic, very, very good, healthy boundaries. Stay out of my business yeah. in Portland. Uh, but no, it's not, I would not say it's a, it's a super collaborative town in the way that Nashville is. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. So is that what you would say is your, your favorite thing about it so far? About Nashville? Yeah. You know, it's hard to say. The weather's beautiful. Uh, we didn't have a very hot summer. Everybody warned me about that. That didn't happen. I'm outside almost every night around a fire in our backyard with some different guests having a great conversation. How long have you been here? A year. So you've, you've had enough time to kind of... Yeah, I've been here a year, but again, I was in and out of this town for 10 years. In fact, I almost bought an apartment here just to oh, save okay. myself so on you, hotel you bills. Yeah, before, no, this okay. is a town that, that I've spent a decade in. In fact, a lot of people oh, thought okay. I lived here, but I oh, didn't. Nice. Yeah. So uh, it's more collaborative. Um, what do you, you know, what's what's your favorite thing about this city over, you know, the, well, Nashville is the southeast, but in a way it doesn't quite feel like the no. southeast in general, you know. Um, is there, maybe what's what's been the hardest thing to get used to being in the southeast versus the Pacific Northwest? Because they're quite different, I would say. yeah. Well, it's not been hard to get used to. I, I, it's been a very wonderful transition. Um, I'm glad to be here. There's yeah. not a part of me that misses Portland in any sort of negative sense. Mm. Uh, just, just really great nostalgia about that town. But seasons change, people change, and this was much more me now. Yeah. I would say the big thing that I worried about coming in was I tend to be a pretty independent thinker, especially on... Uh, in my faith, religious issues, and mm -hmm. a Christian memoirist. And I wondered whether traditional church culture would, um, uh, whether it would be conflicting to live here with some of the sort of Southern Christian ethic that you think about in the South Yeah, uh, that is sometimes perhaps resistant to asking interesting questions, you know? Definitely. And uh, I, we've encountered zero of that. I've had, I've had amazing conversations with pastors and priests and uh where we've talked openly, even political leaders who tend to be more conservative, uh, it just seems like everybody's open to a conversation and nobody's really uh, trying to control anybody else while they're also, you know, taking stands for what they believe in. That was a, a huge surprise to me. Hmm. And uh, I think that's one thing that I kind of miss in Portland is it is a left-leaning town, but you really just kept a lot of your ideas to yourself and didn't mess with it. Here you can actually talk about it and it doesn't create a lot of conflict. or con uh, And so it's... I've enjoyed that aspect. You like that of aspect? I of it really here. do. Yeah, I yeah. really do. It's bringing out something um, good in me as a writer and as a thinker, and, and uh, I'm able to process more openly here. You know, I remember being in Portland. You would feel like, is it okay to pray in public before you eat a meal? <laughs> you know, after <laughs> yeah. 20 years of yeah. that, and here people just express themselves and their faith pretty openly, and and um, so it's bringing bringing out that part of me too. It's really nice. Yeah. Well, so what? What's the whole journey to you getting here? You know, I know it started in Texas, I think, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and I know that you've obviously written a lot about this stuff in your books. So, um, you know, the story has kind of been told, but uh, how did you get to this point? You know, I mean, you, you've talked a lot about being a writer and you've you've written some best-selling books and now you've started StoryBrand, which seems to be kind of a new phase, a new, mm -hmm. a new thing. Mm -hmm. And... Um, how did you get here? Well, I, I've, I've, you know, if you average out how often I write a book, it's about 
every three years. Mm -hmm. And it really doesn't take three years to write a book. So I was busy with other stuff during that time. Yeah. Before I ever wrote a book, I was president of a little publishing company in Oregon. And so I'd always been in business and was a marketing major in school and, uh, and just always loved it. I loved helping other people bring their books into the world. And I would almost say I like it as much as I like writing my own books. One of the main reasons is it's, there's a lot less pressure. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so I've always had that business side of me and I've always run, I've always owned a company and always run a company. Uh, and then I would, I would write a book at night or I'd mm. go off to a cabin and get some work done on it. And, um, and so that was always sort of a dual part of my personality. And now uh, with Story Brand, which is a brand strategy process that we take companies through to help them filter their messaging so that it's much more impactful yeah. and increases customer engagement. That's just 15 years of running a company and trying to figure out how to create good messaging and yeah. trial and error over 15 years, while also at night learning to write books and learning to make copy succinct and compelling. So I'm doing that to write books, and then I'm coming back and writing marketing copy during the day, and they're beginning to affect each other, especially when it comes to me spending so many years studying the elements of story, which I think is the most powerful tool to compel a human brain so yeah. story brand is basically taking those seven elements of a good narrative which are elements that i've watched a, a, a bunch of films and read a bunch of books and try to figure out what the common elements were and I, I chose personally seven taking those seven elements and filtering a company's marketing messages through them we've been blessed to be able to work with pantene and ford uh and uh, chick-fil-a is a, is a one we have a wonderful relationship with them had meetings with the White House. So off, off the bat, we were working with multi-billion dollar brands yeah. and, and found that the process was incredibly beneficial to them. And now, of course, we work with all sorts of companies, just taking them through the process. Yeah. So that that's a love of mine. Um, yeah. I identify with people who run their own businesses. I know what the struggles are to have to wake up every day and make X amount of dollars or lay somebody off. Yeah. That's a huge pressure. Uh and I identify with them, and I want them to do better. And so many of the companies that we work with have really great products, really great company culture. Uh, they're doing okay. They're making a profit. But their messaging is so confusing that I know I can help them create better messaging that is going to create, that's going to cause an uptick in their business. Yeah. And uh, to, you know, for anybody to have something with a product that's really good that you're really helping people is it just makes your life better because now you wake up every morning yeah. and you have something to offer. Well, so, so what do you consider yourself? I mean, do you still think of yourself primarily as I'm a writer or do you mm. think of yourself as a CEO or a, a business owner, an entrepreneur? Well, it's a dual question because none of us live in categories, yeah. but we're perceived in categories. So what I would consider myself would be something different than what the public considers me. Um, I'm a writer. I'm a thinker. If, if there's one thing that brings it all together, it's that I sit down every day and try to communicate something clearly. Uh, whether I'm writing a book, uh, you know, a memoir that I need to communicate clearly, this thing that happened to me in the fifth grade. Mm -hmm. uh, if we are promoting a, 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 the release of a product, I need to communicate clearly what that product is. So if there's one thing I do, it's just I just try to communicate everything in a clear and compelling way. You can take that desire or that skill that I've learned and you can apply it in a bunch of different ways 
which runs the risk of confusing people as to what you do. Yeah. Uh, and so to some people, they would say, I'm a writer. That's probably to most people. Uh, and yet we've got this new growing clientele that don't know, they've never read any of my books. Yeah. They just know I can help them with their messaging. So to them, I'm one thing, and to other people, I'm something else, which is hard for people to get their minds around very quickly. Um, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Did you have any vision of, I'm going to be an author someday, I'm going to run a business someday? What was, yeah. it, what was it about when you were 10 years old? Well, when I was 10... Um, you know, I went through different phases. I wanted to be a, we lived by a train track, and so I wanted to drive a train. I wanted mm -hmm. to be an engineer. Yeah. And we would, of course, put pennies out on the track and smash the pennies, and we just lived around those trains. So I dreamed about that when I was a child. Uh, as I grew up, my mom involved me in my local church, and I daydreamed about maybe the possibility of going into ministry someday and being a pastor and was heavily influenced by the ministers at my local church. Uh, and so I dreamed about that, and then... Um, Mom also would drive us to the state capitol in Texas, and we'd meet with these politicians about whatever piece of legislation they were about to pass. And so there was a season in high school and straight out of high school and college where I went to the Republican National Convention and got involved in the political process a little bit. And so I dreamed about maybe one day being a politician. But when I began writing, uh, I found something that I truly loved. When was uh, that? It would have been right in there, right out of high school, I... Uh, began reading uh, ferociously, uh, you know, a book, at the least a book a week. And I wasn't a reader through high school, so I just began reading and reading, began memorizing a lot of poetry. What inspired you to start doing all that if you weren't I, a I, big reader? Yeah, I, I attended a lecture. Uh, it was a series of lectures. It was a, kind of a seminar that I went to that really convinced me that I could take personal agency over my life and that I could actually be an impactful person, which I suspected mm. even when I was a kid, but it was as though I was given permission. And one of the things that they said early on was, uh, readers are leaders. Yeah. And if you really want to lead, you've just got to read and you've got to read a lot and then made some friendships in that organization. And, uh, they were all readers and so decided I've got to start reading. And that's what planted a bug in me. I'd love to be a writer someday. Then, through a series of circumstances, ended up with a job at a publishing company, moved up in that publishing company, saw how the process worked. Uh, a lot of the romanticism yeah. and fear of it was taken away because I was a publisher. I knew what these authors were doing. They were just they were just pulling their hair out just like anybody else would try right. to write a book. And then that, that led me to start writing on my own. Uh, and I would say, you know, my first 10 years being a writer, uh, even though I was running business on the side and enjoying that, there was just a romanticism about the process that was really wonderful. I, I just yeah. loved spending hours and hours on a paragraph. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it very, very much. So do. out of high school, you're, you start reading all this stuff and you think, this is something I can do or this is something I would love to do? Both. Yeah. This is something I would love to do. And then I had this, you know, I, I think at that age... Uh, being a writer is very, very difficult, uh, and I was just naive enough to know, or to not know that I couldn't do it, and so worked thousands and thousands of hours, mostly on poetry, writing mm. poems and memorizing yeah. poems, um, falling in love with the written word, and um, uh, and so that 
that eventually, I'll, I'll, I, I, I could take you to the chair that I sat in at Common Grounds Coffee Shop on Hawthorne Street, where I finally wrote the first page of a book, something I'd done 10 or 20 times before that never actually turned into a book. But I knew when I wrote that page, I was going to finish this book. That was book. something. This was the start of a book, and it was yeah. going to have an ending. And that was a book called Prayer in the Art of Volkswagen Maintenance that later was retitled to, to be called Through Painted Deserts. And um, So uh, what was that when you, you wrote that page and you just knew that this was different? You know, because I think a lot of writers, I'm in the, I'm, I'm similar, yeah. in, in a mm-hmm. similar boat where I uh, probably, since since I was a kid, the thing I wanted to be was a writer. And I realized at some point that really it was more about... Um, I was more in love with the idea of being a writer than actually mm. writing, you know, which is yeah. a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what was it at that, you when you wrote that page, what was different about that than the 20 others? Well, you, I would back up a little bit. I would just say to encourage you, uh, I was also in love with the idea of being a writer, and that's a great way to get started being a writer. Yeah. You know? And eventually there's this transition that takes place where your second, third book, you realize, oh, this is a craft uh, as romantic as it is, it's also the same kind of work that a plumber does. You just have yeah. to show up every day and, and, do, and it. do it well. And so, but to fall in love with it is um, is one of the ways that people get into the actual craft of it. Yeah. And so um, that happened for me too. But the first book I was convinced was going to be an amazing bestseller, and they'd probably be calling me for the Pulitzer, <laughs> and you know, and it got mediocre reviews and yeah. sold like twenty-seven copies. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, it, you know, and that was humbling. And then the second book uh, did end up taking off, but I'd already been humbled, so I knew what it was like to to essentially fail. And uh, so the second book, I, was, I had so much more gratitude because I knew it was like to fail, and I yeah. knew how rare it was to actually have a book take off. Yeah. And. Uh, so that that was a great start to a writing career. What, you know, did you always intend to... Well, you said poetry, actually. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you're in a particular, you know, I guess I would call you a, a, a memoirist or a, um, you know, you, you write a lot of personal essays and mm-hmm. you know, that, type of, yeah. that type of writer. Um, when you were doing all that reading and thinking about, man, I'd love to do this, um, was it always that sort of like creative nonfiction in your head or, or were you ever thinking... I want to be John Updike, you know, I want to write a novel, yeah. you know. I'd love to write a novel someday. I, I, I don't think I'm a good novelist. I, I've written, you know, chunks of novels before. My wife thinks they're very good. My publisher doesn't. Right, <laughs> so that's, right. That's the girl you want to marry. Uh, just don't <laughs> let her be your editor, right? Right. she's going to like it too much. But, um, no, I, I, I emulated what I loved. And what I loved, the two books that were the foundation of my literary career were um were catcher in the rye by jd salinger mm-hmm. and um traveling mercies by Anne lamott mm-hmm. so salinger's obviously writing fiction right catcher in the rye but it's a lyrical somewhat seemingly directionless uh extended prose right uh, and it just it was a song that i could sing uh, and then Annie wrote uh, excruciatingly honest reflections on faith with no fear of what anybody would think yeah. of her. So she lent me courage, and also she's an incredible writer, and Salinger lent me a voice. And um, 
I would read Catcher in the Rye every day, pretty much, I think, every day before sitting down to work on Blue Like Jazz. And I would just read it for 20 or 30 minutes and get into the rhythm of it. And then when I emulated it, it ended up not sounding like Catcher in the Rye. I, I lent yeah. my own tone to it. And... um but that's how I cultivated that voice. And then in terms of content and things worth talking about, Annie Anne Lamott really was the one who lent me all that. Yeah. And then um, in terms of the sort of the depth of, of the content, I would also add Philip Yancey to that, hmm. who wrote so many great yeah. academic books and, and is still writing wonderful books. Uh, I say academic, they're not academic. They're, but, but he wrote with a depth of, uh, of intelligence that... Uh, exceeds mine, and yet uh, I also wanted to achieve something that had a depth of content and thought sure, as well. Yeah. So those were, you know, Annie and J.D. Salinger, and then uh, Philip Yancey was actually the only one he emailed me, and because we had interacted, and so he emailed me and said, hey, I, I just read your book. Were you influenced by Anne Lamott and J.D. Salinger? He's the only one who ever, <laughs> wow. who ever you know, picked it out That's and said, I think I know your trick. <clears throat> yeah. And I've confess yes indeed I, I was. yeah that that's that yeah that that's kind of crazy um i think uh there were two books uh your book blue like jazz and uh, a wonderful book called marianne o'neill by a guy named justin cronin hmm. um were two books that i read uh i guess whenever it was 2003 and made me think um gosh, I want to do this, so I want to be able to do this. And then after that was when I read Catcher in the Rye, and I was like, I give up. You know? <laughs> it's not going <laughs> to... No, I, I can't no, 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 Don't give up. <laughs> so it was, it was like, you know you know those those guys that are so good that it's just like, um, uh, as much as you love it, you hate it, you know, because yeah. it's it's such a... It's, it's just that good. But um, it's I didn't know that that was the inspiration for you on those that. Those two very interesting. books, yeah. So you're... You know, your whole life has seemed to revolve around, as you said, the idea of story and storytelling. And you um, you mentioned the various careers that you were considering, even pastoring. And, you know, you, you've given talks at conferences. And, mm -hmm. you know, was that in you as a kid? Like, were you were you telling stories? Were you that kid, you know, putting on little, you know, productions or just, just very creative and expressing yourself yeah. constantly? Yeah, super, I think so, super creative. Um, you know, just had imaginary friends and, you know, those yeah. kinds of things as a kid and then uh, got heavily involved in my church youth group and was really uh, mentored and befriended by the youth pastor there who was just an amazing man who Blue Lake Jazz is actually dedicated to him and uh, found a home in that youth group. Ha had a great high school experience but really just couldn't wait to get to hang out with my church youth group. Yeah. And that of course is weekly uh, productions of some sort where sure. you're standing up giving announcements and so that got me up in front of people and then you know skits and all those fun things that you do at church camp. So uh the creative, my creative outlet was really at, was really at church. I was also a part of the high school band, and we had a really, really successful high school band. And so, um, what did you play? I played the tuba, and actually, okay. very few people know because I just kind of forgot it. I didn't think it was interesting <laughs> trivia. But right. I went to a, uh, I went to college my first year on a tuba scholarship, on a music scholarship, wow. and, and really dreamed for a second about being a composer. 
but you know, there's not a lot of great tuba symphonies. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I, was this whole thing uh, was this encouraged in you? You know, I, I feel like sometimes um, uh, sometimes very artistic children are sometimes get a little bit discouraged and encouraged yeah. to be more like think more realistically especially when you get to that age high school you know like you know you got to be thinking about a real job kind of thing yeah you know were, were your uh your family you know the people around were you they were they encouraging this in you or, or were they or were you kind of going against the stream a little bit yeah i would actually say my family was and definitely the ministers at the church were especially on writing um but that was very late in my education um yeah. i started school early uh, and so that put me at a bit of a disadvantage, as Malcolm Gladwell has pointed out, some of the potential disadvantages of that. So I always felt like I was a little bit behind. My grades were not very good. Um, I was all over the map with ADD. I was a different kind of thinker and really thought, even going into high school, that I just wasn't intelligent. I actually hmm. believed that. And um, there was a gal that I had a crush on, and she had been accepted into this honors psychology class my mm -hmm. senior year in high school. And you could really only get in. It was the valedictorian. I think there was a tie for solidatorian. There was, it was just the top 10 people in our class. And where was this, by the way? In, in Texas, outside of Houston, Texas. Okay. And I, I had been a, a, you know, a runner in the counselor's office. And so I kind of had an in and I, I basically begged the counselor to let me into this honors psychology class against yeah. her will. She did. And uh, I found out what it was was two to three months of lectures about personality theorists with no assignments, with no, hmm. with nothing, just lectures for months. Yeah. And then one day the professor would stand up and say, okay, I want you to write out everything that you remember on these four topics. He would do that maybe three or four times a year, and that was your grade. Hmm. And I got something in the high 90s, uh, an A a or an A plus in that class, and uh, that taught me. Looking back, I didn't know it at the time. I thought, well, I'm just really great at psychology, but what it taught me is there's a different way of learning and a different way of thinking. And yeah. have since then understood what was going on in my education by reading thinkers like Ken Robinson, who is really reforming our education system, or at least a prophet in that reformation, uh, and had a chance to spend several hours with him on a beach one day accidentally he was just speaking at the thing that hmm. happened to be at and so we ended up spending several hours together and he basically says our education system has been designed uh, to enhance and encourage the industrial revolution yeah and so those who are good at maths and sciences and uh, those kind of topics are tend to excel and more open free thinkers geniuses on in different kinds of ways of, of communicating, being, and even making money um, are not encouraged and tend to be sifted out of the system. Well, that's bad for our culture. Sure. And it is in dire need of first understanding and then, indeed, reformation. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about how long our public education system has been in place and when it started, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. what... what the goal was is to produce factory workers, you know, yeah. people who could, you know, fulfill, um, be the cogs in the wheels, yeah. you know, yeah. and it's, and so it's exactly, and that's what it produces. It you does. Know? And so, I wonder how many, how much beauty and how much uh, of our economy 
has been damaged without what are the opportunity costs of these students sure. who haven't found out that they were in fact quite brilliant and capable of yeah. producing amazing things for culture and for themselves and for their families and for society as a whole. As a whole, so um, I think I could have easily become a cog in that wheel, and by the grace of God, wasn't found a path and was able to succeed. Uh, and and so that's been a tr- a tr- it's been an amazing journey. I'd love to figure out paths, work with others to figure out paths to create yeah. greater opportunity. Um, when I think about poverty in America. I think of it as a lack of opportunity, not just to get jobs, but also to create jobs. That if yeah. you could increase the entrepreneurial desire in some of the hardest hit communities and begin to introduce people to their own visions and dreams and yeah. minds and tribe, I think you could actually make a huge dent. So I, I think yeah. we've got to put ourselves behind those efforts. Yeah. Well, so you're reading, you're writing, and uh, what were you doing for what was your, what were you doing for work during that time? What was your day job? Like early on, when when you said you first kind of started becoming a voracious reader and you started to write poetry and you started oh, trying to write books and I worked in those days. I I was a delivery driver at a Chinese restaurant. Okay, <laughs> nice. So I would uh, I would drive Chinese food around and yeah. keep poems in my uh, written on index cards in my pockets and try to memorize them. Yeah. as the as I drove around and. Uh, uh, but that was my. I think I, I think I did that for about four years, and then uh, ended up moving to Oregon after running out of money on a road trip in a Volkswagen van. We lived in the woods for a season, a, a month or so. I say a season, but uh, while we lived in the woods, I was a janitor and I scrubbed toilets on this cattle ranch, and every night would use their shower in the office and then go back out and sleep in the woods and come wow. back to work the next day. That was a blast. I, yeah. I didn't mean for that to sound like a hardship. We had so much fun. I was going to say, was that intentional? It, or? Was, it was intentional. Okay, yeah, yeah, it was intentional. I mean, we didn't have any money. We didn't have a place right. to live either. But it was right. also, we also wanted to yeah. do it. Mom would have taken me in. Right. But uh, that's what we wanted to do. Fell in love with Oregon. Stayed in Oregon. Uh, got just a, a, a simple job and, and then met this man who ran a publishing company. Brought mm-hmm. me in on a low level. And within about four years was running that company. And the company was doing decently well. And that So while you were doing all of that stuff, were you still thinking... I'm gonna. I, I want to publish something someday. It was always. It was always a hope in the back of my mind. I mean, I wrote down my senior year in high school. I wrote down my goals, and one of them is I wanted to be a New York Times best-selling author. And so, somehow, subconsciously, that was always a place that I wanted to head. Um, if you would have asked me a year before I became a New York Times best-selling author, what is the chances of that happening? I would have told you twenty-seven percent. You know? Yeah. Uh, which is probably right <laughs> at <Yeah>. that time, <laughs> right? Because um, there's a lot of luck involved too. Sure. Um, but yeah, but that, that's always that's always what I wanted. And so when that happened, ended up well before the guy who ran the publishing company that I was president of sold it, and I started my own company with about four books, mm-hmm. which was just barely breaking even every month. When the book that I wrote hit the New York Times, yeah, and that's when I uh, let the company uh, die and became a writer full time. Until I, later when I started another, another So what was that? I'm, I'm really curious what that moment was like. Because I think you published Blue Like Jazz and it becomes a New York Times bestseller. And, you know, I think that's uh, that's the moment that so many people dream about. You know, yeah. that's the sort of the rock star moment. The moment where you, you've, you know, you did it. You know, what was that like? What did you yeah. feel like? What were you thinking, you know my future is set. I mean, like what, what was going through your oh. head when you, when you, when you, when this happened and you were like, 
this book blew up for you? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, first of all, the, the book, Blue Like Jazz, only sold 21,000 copies its first year, which mm-hmm. is nice. But it's not a it's not a bestseller right. on any list. Yeah. Uh, even the publisher's list. Yeah. Um, so there was no expectation that anything was going to happen. It wasn't until the second and even the third year that it really began to take off. And so I, I happened to be walking through the airport in Nashville, Tennessee, and got a call from the publisher who was just two miles from the airport. They didn't even know I was in town. Called and said, Don, we got great news for you. You've hit the New York Times. And I and I remembered and they said, hey, they found out I was in town because I told them where I was. And they said, come come to the office. If you can be here in an hour, that'd be great. And um, so I hung up the phone. I just remember standing there at the rental car counter just thinking, oh, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe this is, uh, I can't believe it. This is just something I dreamed about. And, of course, we dream about a lot of things. When one of them happens, it's just such a nice feeling. And So it was a surprise, though. Like you weren't, it was a complete surprise. You weren't expecting this to happen. No, no, it was a complete surprise. And so there were just enormous feelings of gratitude and uh, uh, about just life, you know, that, yeah. that, uh, and it isn't a lottery ticket. I mean, there's not, there's even for a New York Times bestseller, there's, there's not a lot of money oh, in sure. books. Yeah. And, and, but w- when you have a book that sells like that, you, you, you basically, you know, you're going to be able to write, you can afford to take another year off if you live simply and write another one. Exactly. That's yeah. the win. And, and was me, that your th- plan at that time? Plan at that time was just to keep doing it, yeah. to, to try to keep writing another book. And um, I think by the time New- the, that book hit the New York Times, I'd already finished the next book. Hmm. So wrote that one, eating top ramen. Also, <laughs> um, <laughs> was that the um, searching for God knows what? Searching is for that? God knows what. Okay, so you had book. you had already written that book before Blue Like Jazz blew up. Then yes, it, it okay. was not published it was not on the market but you know you write those things and turn them in and they don't come out for another year right so it was it had probably already been turned in and then um went over to the publisher's office because they'd asked me to come over and there was a great little you know lots of hugs and celebration and then they had this i think it hit like it it was introduced on the list at number 42 or something like that or 41 i can't remember and they had this jersey a new york yankees jersey with my name on the back and the number on the list, which was an incredibly high number, oh, <laughs> but nice. it was a number, yeah. And that was a little memento to say, you know, congrats. And so, um, and then that was—I've been with the same publisher ever since, and we have an amazing relationship. So that journey we've all done together, and something we continue to celebrate together. How does that? How does something like that to get super granular? Because I'm just curious. Yeah. How did how did it happen? Like, if it if you know the first couple of years it was selling okay, but it wasn't yes. great. Like, did someone? Did the right person see it and, and review it, or, or how did that it actually a, get on the list? It was, an, it was a lot of things, yeah. uh, and it would be hard to duplicate. Uh, yeah. But it was, uh, you know, first, you, you just have to do the work to write, uh, you know, a, a good book that yeah. will spread word of mouth. That's You do that work. But I know many, many writers who've written better books than me who've not hit the list. So yeah. that's not it. Uh, then there's distribution, so you have to have a publisher that can get it nationally in all the stores so that it can even be bought. And um, and then uh, then there's the lucky factor, or there's the, the lightning strikes. And uh, a lot of times these days it's an author who has hundreds of thousands of people on their email list, and they can right. get something like that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then that wasn't the case, and so what it was was there was an organization out of Florida that really loved the book and 
negotiated with the publisher to cheap to print very cheap copies of it and pass it out on college campuses all over the country. So I think over the course of about three or four years, about 100,000 of those books were given away. Hmm. Well, that was able to spread word of mouth and get people talking about it, and that yeah. those, those books that they were giving away did not affect the list. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't count. But word of mouth spread. Somebody would read it and talk about it. They would go sure. buy it. And over a very slow period of time, that word of mouth began to spread and finally turned it into a bestseller. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, normally you can, if you research a little bit, you know, the books, there's a reason that they're on that list. Yeah. There's a reason that it spiked. And a lot of authors would do well to understand what some of those reasons are and to duplicate that if this is something that you want to do for a living. Sure. Um, there are very, very few stories of a truly beautiful book being written without any publicity or fanfare or marketing effort ever hitting the list. That's yeah. probably one in... I would say conservatively, one in a hundred books will do that. Right. right. One well, in a hundred books on the list will have done that. I should yeah. say. Well, so what was next for you after that? You know that that must have been a really uh, a great feeling and a, a time of feeling very successful and achieving something you'd wanted to achieve. And mm-hmm. um, did that affect where you went next? Were, were you already on a uh, sort of on a path in life, and then suddenly this happens and maybe opens up some new options yeah. or windows for you and, and kind of change things? You know, I distinctly remember the year after the book hit the bestsellers list um, was not a easy year. It was a hard year. It was, a, it was even something of a depressing year because um, I really thought that would be Mecca. That would be amazing. And I, and I don't want to trivialize it because I'm certainly grateful and I also don't want to sound like I had a pity party about success. Yeah. But what it really taught me was some of the more selfish goals that I have, and I would actually say me wanting to be on the New York Times bestsellers list was not a bad goal or an evil goal or anything like that, yeah. but it was a bit of a selfish goal. It wasn't a goal like I want to build wells in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It was about me yeah. and yeah. Uh, me getting validated. And uh, so when that happened, um, it wasn't as meaningful of an experience as I had hoped it would be. So I began to think about what is it take to actually what am I looking for if it's not success what will feed me what will validate me what will make me feel like gratitude about life post the gratitude that I had after succeeding mm-hmm. and then it kind of went well wait I thought this was going to make all my problems go away. this was going to do it yeah and so I began to study Viktor Frankl and his work on logotherapy and a therapy of meaning and and began to understand exactly how contentment and meaning work in life and he really narrowed it down, and this is a Reader's Digest summary of Frankel's work, but that if you have a project that you're working on, especially if it serves the world in some way or serves people around you, it's not just selfish, uh, although it needs to light you up too. Right. It has to do that. Uh, and if you have uh, relationships that are healthy and unconditional and caring, um, and if you have a redemptive perspective on your suffering, and what he meant by that was if you could take a look at the hardships in your life and say, you know, these are hardships, these are very difficult things, but they're also serving me. They're making me a better person. Right. They're humbling me, these kinds of things. But if you could think of those, if you could manage those three things in your life, you would experience a deeper sense of meaning. And I began to change the way I was living after that. Uh, I became much more community-oriented. One of the reasons that I own a company today, if it's not the main reason, is that I get to go to the office and share life with the people that I work with and the company exists primarily for that purpose and the only way we can do that is if we have a really great product that we serve our clients with Mm -hmm. in a way that's excellent and uh, so that's 
the core value of my company, StoryBrand, is this company exists to make the dreams of its employees come true, and we do this by serving our clients with excellence. That's our actual core, that's our main core value, the number one mm. thing, but which means we exist for each other, we care for each other. That's a, that's a pillar of Viktor Frankl's uh, theory on how you experience a meaningful life. Mm. And I'll tell you, it works. Yeah. Um, it's not a lot of days I struggle to get out of bed. Uh, and yet, I'm not as famous as I used to be. And uh, But the, the trade was worth it. The trade was well worth yeah. it. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I, I, I would have expected you to be depressed the next year. Um, <laughs> I don't know, because I, maybe because I'm exactly the same way. But um, yeah, I've always found that uh, whenever I get whatever it is that I've wanted... Um, as amazing as it would have seemed before I achieved it, once it happens, um, uh, there's always like a, it's a letdown. There's a, just mm-hmm. a dip afterwards, mm-hmm. you know, you, mm-hmm. you, uh, you do this amazing thing, you complete something and, and, uh, I guess that's because of expectations or whatever you think it's going to do for you and then it doesn't do it. But right, right. it's, it reminds me of, uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite books and films, um, and authors <laughs> is uh, uh, Wonder Boys by Michael Chabon. Oh, yeah, yeah and, um, I love that movie. And uh, such a great book and such a great film. And um, and you know that's that's essentially that story. The guy who who wrote this uh, best selling book became very famous and then couldn't repeat it. Didn't know what to do with himself and went through years of you know uh, you know just sort of languishing away and not able to actually not able to it was sabotaged by his own success basically so so uh, did you experience any of that or any of those feelings at least or did you find yourself at any time wondering like how am I ever going to like feel the pressure to everything I do now has to be at least this good or better you know oh heavens yeah no that there was a season where after it hit the bestsellers, and of course you make the mistake of reading your reviews. Yeah. <laughs> now you have your those reviews in your head. I would say it took me another 10 years to get back to writing, to enjoying really? the, the writing process. It was a labor hmm. uh, until even this last book that I wrote, which I just met with this kind of therapist guy who helped me figure out some of the creative process. And uh, one of the things he said to me is, Don, you're being, you're, you're being so careful. You used to not be careful. And as yeah. he said it, it just rang so true and started being less careful, letting people know really what I was thinking, what I was feeling, what I thought was beautiful to write. Yeah. And uh, have gotten some reviews back on that book, uh, which comes out in February. And a lot of people are saying it's the best book I've written, which surprises me. So I feel like, oh, well, I've got, I've got that back a little bit. Um, and there was uh, wow, though. It's, but seriously, ten, it's taken. Yeah, you well, feel I, like I wrote this books the during first, that time. Yeah, and, you, but, you have. but they were labors. Right. They were, it was, it was a labor to write them because you have the weight of all those, not just the negative reviews, but the positive reviews and the people that you don't want to let down. Yeah. And I mean, it would be crushing to read this, this just isn't his best work. Right. You're like, ugh. And, and yet, how are you going to produce your best work with the burden on your shoulders to produce your best work? Yeah. It actually takes away from exactly. your ability to produce the best work. So it's a bit of a mental game that is a phase, I think, people who succeed go through. And the other thing is I think it, I now know it's very dangerous to have a goal 
um, that you're trying to reach. I like having a goal that I'm trying to pass through on the way to another goal. And that to me is much more healthy because you can celebrate passing through this goal and yet you still have something to do. You're going to try to get to that goal. And always trying to set one goal behind the next. We were designed, in my opinion, to stay in motion yeah. uh, and to keep moving, not to be you know, maniacally driven, but I don't think that we were designed to sit around and pull the lid out of our belly button. Yeah. And one of the most healing things that you can do, you can help a very self-reflective person uh, with is just give them a project. Yeah. Give them something that gets their mind off of themselves, something to build, something to create, especially in community. Yeah. And it's just, it's that that has been so healing for me. I, I can't remember the last time I was depressed. It's been a very, very long time. And I would say the reason is is because I just wake up and have something to do and have people hmm. who depend on me to do it. Yeah. I don't, you know, who has time <laughs> to yeah. sit and reflect on the sadness of my life? Well, I've got work <laughs> to do. I, I can give you about three minutes for that. And yeah. Then I got this guy I'm supposed to meet, right? Yeah. And um, it's it's a well, uh, therapy you, of distraction, I guess. That's yeah. That's actually that's actually very interesting. But what do you mean by the um, uh, the the goal to pass through? Um, Maybe explain that a little bit more because I'm envisioning um, eventually there's a goal or it's just inception and you you can you know like how do you, yeah like, well how does that work what do you, what do you mean when you say you you set goals to to pass through and that that how did, and that maybe I interpreted that as as one way that helps you from accomplishing something and then feeling like well what now you exactly know? I don't I'm not a big fan of what now yeah and um, I mean, I could I could sit down and have coffee with somebody and ask them a few questions and pretty much predict whether they struggle with sadness based on how they answer those questions. And and one of them is is what project are you working on? What are you trying to build, or what are you helping build? You yeah, know, maybe it's somebody else's project that you're contributing to. If there's not a clear answer to that, uh, or if, if they don't know what they're doing with their lives right now, yeah. Uh, it's a dangerous territory to be in. And, um, and so even if you don't know what you're doing with your life, especially kids in their 20s, they're, they're just now at the, sure. the phase of life where they're being set free and they haven't figured that out yet. And I would say, well, what you're doing with your life then is trying to figure out what you want to do with your life, which is actually right. a great thing to do with your life during this season. Um, just try a bunch of stuff and see what lights you up. Yeah. Um, but to not be pointing towards something uh, is a problem. And the other thing that I think happens in our culture is there are so many options. There are studies that show that the more options that a person has, yeah, the happier they are to a point. And then if those options increase, it's a massive... It's a total paralysis of choice. It is. Absolutely. It is. Totally. And um, well, a great scene in the movie Wonder Boys that you just referenced is when Katie Holmes... Um, confronts Grady Tripp about his new novel, which everybody think he ha- thinks he has writer's block, but he doesn't. He's on page 2,276 yeah. or whatever yeah. of this book. She's the only one who read it. She snuck into his office and she read it. And she says, Grady, um, you teach us in class that we're supposed to make choices, but you don't seem to have made any choices in this novel. You have gone on and on about beautifully about all the horses genealogies <laughs> these yeah. sorts of things mm-hmm. 
And maybe you should actually make some choices. Of course, she's speaking not just to the book. She's speaking to his life, which right. is shut down also. And then you see the character arc in the movie where he learns to make choices and learns to say no to things so that he can have a focus and so that his story can be about something. And so there's the two sides of the poll are, one, I don't know what I'm going to do, and two, I have way too many opportunities and I'm not making a choice. And it, the, the, the beauty is in the middle. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, so you're now doing more of this entrepreneurial stuff, and I'm curious what led you to kind of shift in that direction, if you will. Was that somewhere in the back of your mind all this time, or did it just, is it an opportunity that just presented itself? sort of. um, You know, I've always run a small company, and so running a small company has, you know, has president of a publishing company, then I started my own publishing company, then I started a conference business that, out of that publishing company. And, and uh, so in order to, to market, you know, as a small company, um, we developed a process based on story that would help us, um, you know, be with companies that are much larger than us. Our messaging is very clear. And uh, when we did that, we found it worked very well, taught it to some other businesses and then people began asking for it. And so that became a whole other division of the fastest growing division. Uh, so, but when you write a book every four or five years, that's all the public knows about you. You know, they don't know, right. you know, that that's millions of people who are reading those books. And we're only dealing with dozens of people in terms of our clients. So, uh, but uh, on any given week, uh, I spend most of my time working on the, on the brand stuff. And I really like it. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy helping people grow their businesses very much. And then, We'll go off to a cabin every once in a while and get some more done on whatever book I'm working on. And occasionally that book, you know, finds its way to being completed and goes to press. Yeah. And uh, so the new one is, is scary close. It'll come out in February. Um, and that'll that'll change life for a year, you know, because I'll be supporting that book and doing some other things. and um, But also still trying to continue to build StoryBrand. Yeah. And I get I get a free copy of that for this interview, right? Yeah, sure. We'll send you one. I'm <laughs> just kidding. No, I'm looking forward to that book coming out. But, you know, writing the type of books you kind of do are kind of in the vein of helping people anyway, or at least for me, it's always been helpful in sort of a self-discovery way. And and now you're doing that in a different way with this company, but it's it's still related. So I guess what I wanted to ask you was, well, you said you're really enjoying this. Um, what what are you really enjoying about it, and and how is helping people in this way different from helping people by writing books, the sort of one to many model? Well, it's I, I love the fact I, I do a lot of speaking where there'll be thousands of people in the audience, and um, that's fun. But at the end of the day, you really don't connect, and uh, you don't connect one on one. Somebody may come up and and say thanks, or whatever, but that's not a connection. So for me, spending two days in a room with 20 business leaders who are running their own companies, who need to make a bottom line, and who want to see that company grow, and then we've got a tool that will help them do that. Uh, to me, that's an exchange and a connection that I that you know it feeds both ways, uh, and uh, I, I just really enjoy that. But, you know, sitting down to write a book, you, you're usually alone when you're writing. You're processing your ideas. It's it can be a bit of a lonely process, but you know, teaching companies to to clarify their brand messages and make sure their website is saying everything it needs to say in order to return the greatest uh, investment, greatest on, on their investment is is much more edifying, validating for me. 
And so that's why I continue to do it. I, I would make more money if I sat down and wrote books all the time. Yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm happier, to, you know, helping these companies and working with a, a staff here. I guess I think writers tend to be more, uh, maybe this is just an incorrect generalization, but more introverted, a little bit more like needing that alone time in their head, very thoughtful people. At least that's how I am. And, and I have always wanted to be a writer. <laughs> so, um, uh, but you're, you're saying that you actually get a lot of joy out of sitting in the room with other people working face to face. And so are you an atypical writer or do you, do you have both of those things where you, you like no, the I'm alone time and I'm definitely introverted. Um, I like, it doesn't bother me to be alone. I, I don't get, you know, some of the hangups that other people have when they're, when they're alone for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, I love processing ideas and, and, you know, the kind of interaction I like to have with people is really, is really working together on a project to get it done. Um, it is, and I don't know what it is about my personality. It's very difficult for me to sit and talk about the weather or what you did yesterday. That, that to me is just not very interesting, but if you're, if you're building something and I can help you build it, or if I'm building something and you can help me, that's the kind of interaction that I really like. And, um, and a way that I connect. So, uh, but I would say, yeah, you know, you get worn out if as an introvert, you do get worn out in those intense, you know, after two days of that, about a day to recover when get back to normal. Um, but writing is the same way writing, even though you're alone in a cabin somewhere, it's a very social experience because you're, you're doing all the work in your brain to try to communicate clearly with that. Somebody isn't there. Yeah. Well, they're going to read it a month or a year later. Um, but you're still, you know, I'll come home from a cabin after writing and my wife will want time and have a conversation and I find I'm exhausted. I feel like I've, I've just had, <laughs> yeah. a, I've had 48 hours of conversation. So it's a, it's a really weird dynamic in that well, sense. I, I kind of want to nerd out about writing for a minute and ask you a question about that because you're, you're so good at it that when you read your books, it just feels it feels effortless. It feels like you're just, it just spills out of you. It's just a conversation. It just, uh, it just flows. And, and, um, um, and so I'm curious when you're, when you're in that mode, when you're writing, are you kind of, you know, is is it a battle? Are you fighting with each of those sentences or is it more just, it's just, you know, these stories are just pouring out of you? No, it's a battle. I mean, you're, you're, um, you, you work very hard to get a book so that it seems effortless. And yeah, a lot of it's just knowing what not to say and uh, everything needs to be very interesting and needs to be effortless. And so, no, you, you fight for it. Um, yeah, especially in the editing process where you're cutting stuff out that you think might be boring or, or something like that, but it's work. It's just a lot of work. Yeah. How do you know what not to say? Is that just life experience? Is that just experience as a writer or are there, well, you know. Hemingway said Hemingway said every good writer built-in shockproof shit detector, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and I think as much as you can learn the craft, and I think you can learn it, um, there's also this intuitive sense of that's not interesting or that is going to be interesting, and that's the constant you know thing that you're asking yourself as you're writing is will people find this perspective or the way this is worded interesting. It's an interesting question yeah. uh, to ask and attempt to answer. And 
that would be the number one thing as I read manuscripts that sometimes people give me, hoping to get published. Uh, and I, I just find that they don't, they don't have that. They don't, they, they don't know that this is actually not very interesting. I guess you and, get a lot of that probably, huh? A lot of people handing you stuff. Well, I don't read very many of them because I, you know, I, like today for the first time in months, I've got to call a friend. This, you know, he wants me to pass along his book and, and I read a couple chapters of it and just thought there's no way this book is going to get published. And yeah, certainly heard, I heard back from the publisher saying, you know, it was just not interesting just because it's not interesting. Yeah. So, um, so it, it, if I read everybody's manuscript, I would have to do that a lot. Yeah. You <laughs> wouldn't have want, any time. Yeah. And not only that, but it, you know, people take it very, very, their hearts work. And, um, and I, I never know whether or not if this person went back and chiseled it out and worked on it and put another couple months into it, could they, interesting or whether they just don't have it and that's a risk of course that they have to take um sure but i I do think hard work wins the day and if you keep working at it keep working at it keep working and ultimately i you know even though i'm saying i got to call somebody and tell their work isn't interesting you know i got that call from my publisher last year when i turned in a piece of work and they said this is this is just not good yeah and you know, as a writer, you, you really kind of cherish that honesty, but when you're just getting started, that's hard to hear. And it's hard to know that that's actually part of the process. Getting that criticism is part of the process of getting that work polished. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's hard for somebody who hasn't done it professionally for them to, to not be discouraged, which I hate, I hate being discouraging. So I try yeah. to put myself in that situation. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Tell me if this is true or not. I I found that often when I sit down to write, I try to write for someone. Like I try to think, you know, what can I teach or what can I say that would be interesting? You know, I try to think about those things and it ends up just being a mess. And I found, I don't know, most of the time that things, the things that connect most with people are when I just stop worrying about who's going to read this and what they're going to think and I just say what I want to say in the most authentic way possible. In other words, I just be me, you know, however I might say that, that's how I say that. And, and stop trying to say it the way that, you know, maybe is the right way or the professional way or, or what I think might succeed, you know, um, is that, does that land anywhere with yeah, you? Or? It is. It is. It sounds like a, a, a conflict of what I'd, you know, what I'm saying, but it is true. You, you do write what you think is interesting and hope there are other people out there who find it interesting too. Yeah. Um, and so the, the rub is there are some, <laughs> you have to be somebody who finds things interesting that a lot of other people find interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Or, yeah. or be able to word it in such a way that, uh, you know, I mean, when John Krakauer is reading the paper and he reads about some story, he says to himself, that's interesting. I'd like to know more about that. So certainly it's his, pursuit of what he finds interesting but he also has a knack of finding very interesting stories um that turns out everybody kind of sees as a riddle and once they're introduced to it and wants to know how it resolves and so there is that gifting if you will from uh from good writers that they they're able to do that they're able to find something interesting and and uh you know flesh it out yeah definitely 
Well, one of the big themes of this show that I talk to everyone about is uh, the struggle. You know, I like to talk about, the, you know, the business and entrepreneurship and writing and music and all these things from the position of the struggle and not just the position of the success. And so it's something I'd really like to ask you is what has been through all of this, the, the biggest thing that you've had to overcome or maybe you haven't yet and you're still struggling with, but like, you know, that, that the biggest thing that has held you back? Well, I, it probably it's always time um, and how you spend your time and what you give your time to. It's our greatest, you know, this greatest commodity we've got is our time. And so, um, you know, if you want to be a writer, you have to write, which means, and writing demands as much work as passing the bar exam or any anything else. And so I, I sometimes get, you know, in trouble or people get frustrated with me when I say, if you want to write, you need to possibly rent a cabin or get a, or get some disciplined hours. And so people who have kids or have other jobs get mad at me because what I'm saying is they can't write. Um, but if I, if I said, you know, if you want to be an Olympic swimmer, you, you got to go away to a gym and you got to train and you got to do Nobody would disagree at all. So yeah, for, for some reason, people think writing is easy and you can do it while you're doing other things. And, and, um, you can, and there are people who have, but that's a very low percentage of writers. Uh, yeah. that's less than 5%. So, you know, 95% of us have to commit the time to do it. It all comes down to, you know, fear of losing, um, fear of failing and the stuff that you're talking about. And, um, you get, you get past that in time. You, you fail enough that you realize there's no penalty to it. Right. Uh, and you realize that yes, people will criticize you when you sound dumb or write something dumb. Um, but that's the, the, the downside of being a leader, being somebody who's influencing culture and, uh, is occasionally you just, you get shot at. So, yeah. <clears throat> Uh, but the upside is is so is worth so much more than what the downside actually costs you. And uh, I had a great little epiphany recently. I, I read actually it's been a couple of years since I read it, but I read Pete Carroll, Coach Pete Carroll's book, Win Forever, and he talks about the importance of always competing. And that very idea kind of frightened me. You know, always compete, get up every day and compete because you know it's exhausting. Yeah. And I don't want to lose and all these sorts of things. And I realized, wait, you know, who cares if you lose? Just get up and compete. I mean, if you move from the bottom 10% of podcasters or writers or whatever it is that you want to do to, you know, about the mid 50% right in there is where you are, that's a heck of a better life just for getting out of bed and competing. Yeah. And you don't have to win. You don't have to come in first. But imagine the much better life that you'll have just by getting out of bed every day and, and putting a little something on the story um, is – and so it was a great epiphany for me to say, hey, don't try to win this thing. Just compete. Just compete. Get up every day and compete. And the uh, bottom line is, Adam, um, most people aren't competing. Yeah. And the truth is if you just get up and do the work, you end up in the top 10% fairly quickly. If and you just once show you're up. There, yeah. yeah, just show up and do the work. Because, and then once you're there, it gets very competitive. There's, you know, that's where people are actually truly competing. And, but, you know, 90% of culture is behind you at that point. And well, you're doing great. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I guess the thing is, as a writer, I'm assuming, as a cr- creative person, I'm assuming you're like this, um, as I am, and most of my friends tend to be somewhat of perfectionists. And it, it's a big hurdle to, as you said, get over the idea that um, it's not going to be perfect. And if it fails, it's okay. You just figure out something else. So, <laughs> you know, it's so funny because when you get up, when you get up, when you're in the middle of it and you really have to get this thing done and you're yeah. really busy, you don't have a lot of time to sit and think about philosophy, you know, and True. Yeah. you're just, you're just really, and um, I think that's very, very healthy is to just get really busy and get in the middle of something that demands your all and your work you know, a team that needs you to show up at the office, a family that needs you to wake up so that they can eat dinner, um, that, that can easily become unhealthy because you're checked out from the world and you're just reacting. But also, I'm not convinced that God designed us to sit around and look in our belly button and analyze the meaning of life. Um, I think you, you go too far that direction and it gets unhealthy too. Absolutely, so, uh, yeah. I think my work is really, in many ways, it's along with my relationships and my faith, you know, my, my work has saved my life in some ways. It keeps me preoccupied and from thinking too hard and it makes me tired so that I enjoy rest, you know? And, um, and so, uh, but I, I do think we just, there's a, you know, a big turning point for me was waking up and making a to-do list and trying to get that to-do list done. When I got in the habit of doing that, just that simple exercise, everything in my life got better. Um, because if, if I don't do that, I sit down and think too deeply about everything (laughs) and that's not healthy for me. There's, this is just not good for me. Yeah. And I, I'd rather just work, just get some work done. Yeah, no, I totally get it. I feel like I'm exactly the same way. I can easily, the whole day can go by and I'm just thinking about things and dreaming up things and planning things, but not actually doing anything. Yeah. It's an easy habit to get into. So um, I don't know if you're the type of guy who, who, who does five-year plans or thinks about the future much or just kind of takes it as it comes. But, you know, do, do you see StoryBrand and the work you're doing there as kind of like uh, where, where you're headed or would you always be writing books? I think there's always going to be books in me. I think I've got five or six more books before I die. Yeah. Um, I think that's a done deal. They probably will come out every three or four years. Although uh, I'll do a string of two or three in a row here that'll come out pretty quickly. Um, but, um, no, I, I feel like, you know, building the business story brand is a delightful experience. It's a lot of fun. And then, uh, you know, perhaps uh, another career in public office might be something I would pursue. Betsy and I have talked about that. Um, you know, but just kind of always building on what you did before and trying to figure out how to help more people, you know, see their dreams come true in, in whatever way you can. Once you've, once you've been given something, it, you know, the way to really selfishly make your life more meaningful is to try to turn around and give it, give that opportunity to other people. Yeah. And, and I say that as, you know, genuinely it sounds like some sort of kind thing to do. And, and you know, and I suppose it is, but it really is, it just makes my life better. And yeah. so, Whatever is next will be to turn around and try to help some other people see their, their dreams come true. Yeah. How, how have you decided the things to pursue? You know, because I know as a creative person and writing books and, and as you said, you just you love helping people with their businesses and, you know, accomplishing these goals. Um, one of the things I've struggled with personally is always, you know, 
liking too many things and having a hard time picking the thing to pursue, you know, was that ever an issue for you or was it just, you know, you were going to write books and you knew it and you were just going to make it happen no matter what it took? Well, early on, it, that, that was it. I was going to write books and, and I knew it and I was going to make it happen. And um, it, I was pretty singularly focused and wrote uh, through Painted Deserts and then Blue Like Jazz, which took off. And so that gave me the opportunity. But, you know, when Blue Like Jazz took off, um, then there were all sorts of speaking opportunities. And then there were, you know, people wanted me to uh, work with them on some project. And so yeah. all of a sudden, I had the curse of too many really great opportunities to work with too many really great people. Yeah. And, um, and I, I made the mistake for a season of just trying to say yes to everything because, you know, this may never come around again. And now I know that that is a critical mistake that I think Warren Buffett said the most successful people in the world are the ones who say no to almost everything. Yeah. And and there's really a truth to that, that I've gotten much, much better at saying no to all kinds of opportunities and being able to, but you know, I constantly have to sit down even what am I doing again? And the reason I have to say that is because everything that I'm not doing, I need to say no to. And, um, otherwise I will get nothing done. Yeah. And so I'm a big believer of stay focused and execute, get things done. Do you have a process for, you know, I'm really interested in that. Like, as you said, after the book came out and suddenly you were, as you call it a curse, which I think it is sometimes of so many great things you could pursue. Um, how, how do you decide? Do you have a process? Like how, how do you know what to say no to and what to say yes to? I do have a process. Yeah. I actually have a life plan that I created. And, uh, if you go to creating your and check it out, but it's a, it's a nine module process. And I just filled out all these modules that helped me go, what kind of person I wanted to be, where I was going with my life, what my priorities were, were uh, what I needed to give more time to and what relationships I needed to let go of. So that part of my life is very, is, is pretty organized. And then I have a daily page that's part of that process that I fill out almost every day, uh, except on the weekends. And it, it focuses me on three specific projects a day. I only let myself focus on three and also reminds me of what the theme of my life is right now, which acts as a filter. So I won't do anything that's not within that theme. Yeah. And so it's a, yeah, it's a structured process that I've created in order to get, get more done and also not be just weary all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so, so definitely there's a process. Yeah. Did, did these companies and things flow out of uh, a particular, you know, book you were writing or period in life when you had an idea like, you know, I can take this and help more people, you know? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, we, we worked for a couple of years creating a screenplay. In order to do that, I studied story pretty intensely. And then I wrote a book about living a better story. And so for you know, seven years, I was just knee deep in studying how story works and story structure. That was mostly just, I was just fascinated by it and then found it to be the most powerful tool to compel a human brain is story. And so there are all sorts of ways to use story to make your life better and to grow your business and all sorts of things. So once I really, you know, really understood story, I I began to adapt it for practical in people's lives and in the life of a business. And so, but it really all, all of this is generated out of a love for studying story. I mean, at any time, you know, uh, in a month, 
one of the books that I'm reading is some sort of diagnosis of how story works. It's still fascinating to me. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, it's thrilling to know that there is this, it's kind of like studying music as a musician. Um, studying story is that for me as a writer. Like in what way, in terms of uh, uh, skill or theory or, or just, you all, just of it. all of it. Yeah. All of it, especially theory though, especially theory. Um, you know, the fact that Beowulf is the same story as the first James Bond movie. That's fascinating to me. So that, that <laughs> means the human brain has not changed since the days of Beowulf. That is very interesting. I'd never thought about that. No, it's the same story. Yeah. You know, Star Wars and Tommy Boy are essentially the same story. I could sit down and show you how. <laughs> and so there's, there's, you know, that to me is just fascinating. I could study that all day long. Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. And it was, it was great to talk to you. Absolutely, Adam. Thank you so much. Well, that's it. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I appreciate Donald Miller for coming on the show and giving me his time. What a great conversation. I hope you were encouraged by that. I certainly was encouraged. Maybe one day I will become a writer, (laughs) finally, and write that book. It's in there somewhere. I know it is. I've already decided the title. One day when I write a book, it's going to be called Sweet Tea and Sweet Jesus. It's going to be about my life growing up in the South. So uh, maybe I should pre-sell that instead of this podcast course. I don't know. Maybe one day I will. Thanks for listening. As I said, all the links, all the stuff we talked about, all the stuff that Don's doing, you will be able to find at avclark.com slash nine. So go there and check that out. Follow along on Twitter. I'm avclark on Twitter and Facebook, facebook.com slash TGM podcast. We're all over the place. And the contest, you still got time. It's If you're listening and it's Wednesday, December 31st, and it's before midnight, go to avclark.com slash contest and get in on it. I'm giving away some cool stuff, and I, I don't want you to miss out. So do that. Keep the reviews coming. I appreciate all of it so much. All right, that's all I've got. Hope you're having a great New Year's Eve, and I will see you next time. <laughs>